it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. The last day of the first month of the year here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, our online home. Lots of content there, including our free podcast every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We, of course, recommend listening live over these three hours when we air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. And our lineup here on the radio today is as follows. Dr. Drew will be here later on this hour. Howie Kurtz coming up in the next hour. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie joining us to kick off our third and final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern. For all this kind of information, including upcoming guests, snippets of content, and other nonsense from time to time quite frankly you can follow us on social media at guy benson show twitter and instagram you can also follow me personally on those two platforms if you'd like at guy p benson i will probably end up asking howie kurtz and chris christie both about a new revelation in the biden classified documents saga that has just been revealed earlier this afternoon cbs news with a scoop reporting that there was a piece of the timeline missing that we didn't know about until today. Now, of course, they knew about it in the Biden White House. We've learned previously that Anita Dunn, the Democratic spinmeister, and a few other people held closely guarded as a secret the existence of this scandal until safely after the election because on substance... It actually broke before the election, days before the election, the week before the election. They were not going to let that get out before voters went to the polls. And so they didn't. In fact, it wasn't until this year, the new year, that we got any glimpse of it. And every step of the way, they've told us how transparent and cooperative they've been. They being Biden's own lawyers who represent him, who protect him, who were concerned with his interests. And yet, they keep failing to mention new developments. Failing to, I guess, contain the new developments in some ways as well. As ultimately we found five or six different troves of classified materials in the president's possession, at the office, at the house in Wilmington. And now the development today, the new update is that in mid-November, apparently the FBI was involved in one of these searches of the office at the Biden Center connected to Penn University at their D.C. campus. They say that this was coordinated between Biden's team and the FBI, but the FBI was there. In some ways, that could be helpful to the Biden narrative, except they didn't tell us that, which makes me just question 
even more things about their account, their timeline, their sequence of events that they have controlled when they have revealed what to all of us. And they expect us to just take their word for it, and it's hard to do that. If they're leaving out giant pieces of the puzzle like, oh, yeah, oh, oops, we forgot to mention for months that the FBI came and did a search at one of these locations back in November. It's just like another paper cut in this overall scandal where they have absolutely failed, despite asserting the opposite, they have failed to be openly transparent and honest about what has happened and when. And it doesn't take a conspiratorial mind to suspect that they are still withholding information to obfuscate the truth. And we know that the special counsel investigation is getting underway, so this isn't over. We'll talk more about that, ask our guests later in the program, about that new shoe that has dropped here on this Tuesday. Meanwhile, we opened the program yesterday with a lengthy monologue spanning three segments from yours truly about the latest attacks against Ron DeSantis from Donald Trump, who's running for president. DeSantis might run for president. Trump's going after him in various different ways. The silly nickname. And he's landed, Trump and his supporters, some of them, have landed on this idea that they're going to go after Ron DeSantis on his COVID policies, his handling of the pandemic. Oh, he really wasn't so good. He was actually the shutdown lockdown guy. He doesn't want you to know that. I think that's an argument that just isn't going to fly. The old political cliche that's kind of folksy and southern, so I can't really pull it off, but that dog won't hunt. We all just saw what happened in Florida compared to a lot of other states. We saw the results in Florida. If this is what they want to do, I think that the DeSantis people, if he runs, will welcome that debate with open arms, especially against Trump. And as I said yesterday, it is, I think, rather revealing, very, very much so, that the DNC rapid response operation is like coming as the cavalry to reinforce this Trump attack against DeSantis. My theory, not a terribly bold one, I think a pretty obvious one, is they are telegraphing very clearly who they're scared of and who they'd rather run against. That's just how I interpret it. So this has been a lot of sort of grenades being flung over at Ron DeSantis, who, if he runs for president, won't announce that for months. He's got the legislative session coming up in Tallahassee. That wraps up in May. It's still January, guys. But I think Trump looks at the polling and has some flop sweat, and he's worried about Maybe one person that could give him a hard time and maybe wrest the nomination away from him if he chooses to run. So he's just been pillorying DeSantis on and off now for months. And often it doesn't sit well with a lot of Republican voters, including Trump voters who also like DeSantis. Like, it's a one-way thing. DeSantis not taking the bait, not firing back, not engaging on this stuff with Trump. But... As was the case back in December when Trump was sort of test driving Ron DeSantis and he had some other pretty lame attack on DeSantis. It's like at some point people are going to ask the governor about what he thinks. They're going to ask for a response. Right. He's not going to necessarily proactively reply. He wants to stay out of it for now. But someone's going to ask him. 
and he gave an answer back then. He's given a similar answer this time. This was from earlier today. Something of a response. DeSantis was asked about Trump's barbs and provocations. Of course, DeSantis knows the context is he's being critical, Trump is, of the Florida response to COVID and the pandemic policies and trying to sort of rewrite history in a way to gut DeSantis on something that he is strong on. So here is how DeSantis replied in cut 18. It's a little over a minute. So let's listen together. I roll out of bed. I have people attacking me from all angles. It's been happening for many, many years. And if you look at the good thing about it, though, is like if you take a crisis situation like COVID, you know, the good thing about it is when you're an elected executive, you have to make all kinds of decisions. you got to steer that ship. And the good thing is, is that the people are able to render a judgment on that, whether they reelect you or not. And I'm happy to say, you know, in my case, not only did we win re-election, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has in the history of the state of Florida. <laughs> we won by the largest raw vote margin, over 1.5 million votes, than any uh, governor candidate has ever had in Florida history. And in fact, we almost doubled the previous record, which I think was like 780,000 vote margin. And so... What I would just say is uh, that verdict has been rendered by the people of the state of Florida. In short, in summation, scoreboard. Not just the 19.5-point victory, not just the 1.5-million-vote victory, but also the economic outcomes in Florida, the tourism to Florida the incoming migration from all over the country to Florida. And then, of course, the people of Florida deciding that they want DeSantis to get a second term by the biggest margin in the history of the state. So I'm sure, knowing DeSantis a little bit and the way that his brain works, he could go chapter and verse responding to each element of this attack against him from Trump and from the DNC combined. And maybe that time will come. And I went through a lot of those details yesterday. You can go back and listen on the podcast if you missed it. But rather than engaging and going even deeper into that granular stuff point by point, and he's got the facts on his side, he's just like, look, people get to decide whether I've done a good job. They just had that opportunity in November. There was a crisis. I was the executive. I had to steer the ship through the waters, and then the people could render a verdict, and they absolutely did that. Scoreboard. That's the extent of the response. I think for now that's a savvy response. Now, he said that he gets the very first thing out of his mouth. He gets out of bed every morning, and people are criticizing him from all directions. That's not just from Trump and the DNC with this joint hit, this bogus hit on COVID stuff. It's really everything, right? He's had incoming fire throughout his entire tenure as governor of Florida, and that's underway. We talked about this African-American AP class, African-American studies, that his administration vetoed as written, knowing what the headlines were going to look like, and they equipped 
some people in the media, including me, with actual information to explain that decision. And as we reported, the AP and the College Board came back and said, we're going to look at this, we're going to reevaluate it, and we will have an updated, altered version of the curriculum for consideration next month. But the New York Times has an op-ed just out. Headline, Ron DeSantis wants to erase black history. Why? Because you're a lying hack, that's why. Just like Randy Weingarten said, almost the exact same allegation. Black history is a requirement to be taught in Florida schools. Section 4, Unit 4 of the proposed AP class had a bunch of radical stuff in there, rife with politics, and that's what the administration said. We're not going to have that taught to teenagers in Florida. And the dishonest, the dishonest shills, predictably, are trying to make that seem like they're getting rid of and erasing black history altogether because they're racist. That is the talking point. It's completely untrue. And DeSantis and his team, they're just planting their feet on this one. And I would say that they're winning because the college board has already indicated that they're backing down. National Review has a very good fact check out today. The truth behind the great Florida classroom library freakout. We talked about this a couple days ago last week. About how teachers now feel like they are being banned from having books in their classroom because it's now a felony under fascist Ron or whatever. It's ridiculous. It's this maelstrom of misinformation and overreaction, frankly, from certain principals and administrators just based on an updated Florida statute that makes it a felony for teachers and adults to furnish pornographic material to children. And somehow others are extrapolating that or overexpanding it into a ban on books. No. When you get to the truth, you see that that is a grotesque misrepresentation. National Review with a useful fact check there. And then remember how we told you that recently Florida and DeSantis asked public schools and universities to give an accounting in terms of dollars spent, public dollars spent, on all the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, CRT stuff? All of those elements that have really become this burgeoning industry. How much money, public money, taxpayer money, is being spent on those materials and those programs and those bureaucrats in Florida. They asked for an accounting, right? Like, show us what you're spending on it. Well, they got that information back, and then DeSantis made an announcement earlier today about the next step in this, cut 19. Our institutions will be graduating students, I think, with degrees that are going to be meaningful. We don't want students to go through at taxpayer expense and graduate with a degree in zombie studies. And so this is going to make a difference. We are also going to eliminate all DEI and CRT bureaucracies in the state of Florida. No funding, and that will wither on the vine. And I think that that's very important because it really serves as an ideological filter, a political filter, You've seen different things. I mean, New College has really embraced that, and that's part of the reason I think it hasn't been successful. Presidents at Florida's 28 state colleges just recently signed a letter pledging to eliminate 
all DEI and critical race theory and related concepts from their institutions. It is being defunded by the state of Florida, as announced there from the governor. Wins on the board, ladies and gentlemen. We're just getting started. So much to get to here on the program today. Dr. Drew later this hour, Howie Kurtz, Chris Christie, and more. Stay with us. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Quick update here on the George Santos saga. The newly elected Republican congressman from New York telling colleagues earlier today he will be stepping away from his committee assignments, small business and science committees, because he says right now he's a distraction. And he said with all the ongoing attention surrounding personal and campaign financial investigations, he asked to be temporarily recused from those assignments until, quote, I am cleared. We'll see if that happens. The business of the Congress must continue without media fanfare, he said. I'm not sure if this was in the official report, but he likely added that he wanted to spend more time and devote more time to his number one passion and mission, which is defending the streets of Gotham City at night. He hated to reveal that, but you know he had to justify why he was stepping away from the committees, and now we've learned one more thing about George Santos and his really remarkable bio. I did see that a number of Democrats have been demanding more, that he should resign. I think the minority leader, the House minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, who is an election denier, he's been part of this chorus. I know Democrats are also very angry that Republicans are poised to remove some of their members from certain committees. We've talked about that. Reprisals from the new Pelosi standard, the new Pelosi precedent that she set in the last Congress. Schiff and Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee for various reasons. I mean, there's some substance behind this, too. Then also Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Given a number of her anti-Semitic things that she said in the past, she pled ignorance over the weekend. We played that sound yesterday. Oh, I didn't know that there were tropes about Jews and money. Really? Are you a complete, ignorant idiot who knows nothing about the tropes that you're dabbling in? Or do you have a bigotry problem? You and Rashida Tlaib. I know which way I would probably go on that particular question. Let's step aside and come back. Dr. Drew is here next. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. We welcome back now to the program Dr. Drew Pinsky, board-certified internist, addiction medicine specialist. He's, of course, a TV host and producer as well, podcaster. Be sure to check out his streaming show, Ask Dr. Drew, on dr.drew.tv. Also check out his family of podcasts at drdrew.com. Dr. Drew, great to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Guy, good to hear your voice. So I saw this clip floating around a couple different times on a few different platforms, social media, in the last few days. And it was pretty striking to me. It was Gavin Newsom. Turns out he said this a couple years ago in early 2020, but it is resurfacing and it's making the rounds and sort of reigniting a conversation about addiction. You're the perfect person to ask about this. 
And I guess we'll listen to this together in Cut 23, and the crux of my concern is finding the right balance from a public policy perspective between destigmatizing addiction in such a way as to help people get help versus destigmatizing it to the point of actually enabling it. Here's what Governor Newsom in California said. Again, early 2020, cut 23. Clean and sober is one of the biggest damn mistakes this country's ever made. I know it's a hold your hand idealistic point of view that somehow magically, I mean, God bless some of you. If you're like me, I've been known to have a glass of wine at night watching some of the nightly news. Uh, We all need to self-medicate periodically. We all need to self-medicate periodically. He's talking about, you know, a glass of wine here or there. Of course, that's a broader critique of, hey, people just need to be clean and sober. And we've seen some of these very permissive sort of bleeding heart policies, especially in places like California when it comes to addiction. When you think about these issues, having dealt with patients for many years, hundreds if not thousands of them, what's the appropriate balancing act here and what do you make of what we just heard there uh, this is nothing short of just uh, you know uh, <laughs> when, I, when I think of those these positions that everyone has maintained here in California to sort of substantiate what they're doing with homeless I become enraged because at its core it denies the condition of addiction which is an illness and we can discuss what an illness is but before somebody decides whether something is or is not an illness You must be able to define all illnesses so we know, in fact, what an illness is and see if addiction fits under that umbrella. And number two, um, in in the definition of the disease of addiction is progression. That's part of the defining feature of addiction. So if you take somebody with bona fide addiction and you give them any substance that activates this reward system over time, they will progress progress. And when it comes to opiates or alcohol, they will die. So this is nothing less than than manslaughter, in my opinion. I've said this for years. And here in California, we, well, in L.A. County alone, we have climbed since I last made my rounds talking about this from uh, five per day to six per day and now seven per day dying on the streets of L.A. County every day in the name of what? These are treatable conditions. I, well, they I say treated, it's compassion. I've treated right? literally thousands of people. This might pay, it's literally like I'm a surgeon walking down the street, and I see the condition I can treat wherever I go, but I'm not allowed to go near the patients. And that's the condition. It's as though we have an, outdoors, an outdoor asylum on our, on our hands here with no nurses and no doctors. It's, uh, you can't imagine. Imagine, let's just throw up some walls and say, okay, it's an indoor asylum now. People are dying at 7 a day. You think that hospital would uh, not have a couple lawsuits on its hands? I think that's a fair point. What you would hear from Gavin Newsom and and other people like that is they would say, well, look, this is compassionate, number one. And number two, it's unrealistic to say, look, these people are horribly addicted. They've got all these problems. We've got to make them clean and sober. That's not a, a standard that is really attainable. So as a society, we should sort of let go of that as the goal. Maybe is why people get confused. There people often, you know, when you're hearing information on the media, it's hard to hold multiple ideas in mind at the same time. But I'm going to ask you to do that. A, returning people to a thriving life is very possible. 23 million people can tell you about it. Very possible. I ran a program for nearly 30 years. We did that all the time. 
And I, I got into addiction medicine because I was interested taking people from dying, young people often, dying to better than they ever knew they could be. That's what I was interested in. That is not for everybody. There are people with multiple diagnoses, whether it's serious mental illness, brain disorders, traumatic brain injury, schizophrenia, and addiction, for whom the idea and no resources and no motivation and no no people in their lives trying to trying to support them through this, it's unrealistic for that person to think about clean and sober. And there are great harm avoidance and medically assisted treatment strategies out there. Of course, we do that. We, it's the right treatment for the right patient. But to dismiss a, a abstinence-based program uh, completely is it, well. That now we're back to manslaughter. Now you're committing people to die. There's also this line that he throws in there. Almost, I, I think he almost finds it like amusing, or he's trying to relate it to his life. You know, I, I don't want to get too personal when he talks about the self-medication and having, you know, a glass of wine at night because the news is stressful or whatever. And look, I get it too. Sometimes there are very stressful weeks at work where we're working a ton and the news cycles are stressful. And by Friday night. I just want to go over to our neighbor's house and have some cocktails and not have to think about anything and, you know, maybe have to walk home a little tipsy and go to bed. I get that. I just feel like it's maybe a little bit frivolous to be comparing something like that to the serious illness, as you said, that is really kind of the core issue here. The the occasional use of a substance has no relationship other than it's humans consuming a, a substance, it is not in any way overlapping with the disease of addiction. Uh, most people use substances. Most mammals tend towards altering their mind in some way at some time in their life. That is not addiction. So let's talk about what addiction is. Addiction is a genetic disorder with a biological basis. The hallmark is progression in the face of adverse consequences work, school, finance, health, relationships, legal status, and then denial. That's it. Now, what makes it an illness and not a syndrome, right? Syndrome like fibromyalgia is a lot of different genetic and environmental factors that result in a similar symptom complex. An illness has a common genetic basis, a common inciting environmental influence, resulting in predictable abnormal physiology that's reflected in signs and symptoms, that follow a predictable pattern, we call that natural history, and that somebody like me can interfere with that natural history with something we call treatment. That is disease, all disease, and addiction fits categorically under that definition. On a somewhat related topic, since I was just talking about, you know, having a drink or two here or there, a lot of people engage in dry January, where they've had a bit of a boozy holiday season, They decide to not drink alcohol in January, and then they can resume in February. Uh, Several members of the radio team here attempted to try January. I was not one of them. Um, One failed after a week. One failed after three weeks. We've sort of joked about it a little bit here. And as long as things are under control, it's something that you can joke about. I just wonder, from your perspective and based on your experience, is something like dry January like a – a period of concerted abstinence from something, is that a helpful thing? Is that a healthy thing? Does it then maybe create pent-up demand where then things get out of hand in February? I guess it probably depends on the person. I just wonder what you make of an annual tradition or rite of passage like dry January. 
Yeah, I, I you know, I don't object to it, and, and it, it has different meanings in different biological contexts, right? If your idea is optimal health, well, then by all means, you should probably terminate your relationship with alcohol, not just for one month, but for good. Now, if you are into the deal-making mode with your relationship with substances, that's not a normal relationship with substances. And one of the problems with this sort of deal-making with oneself is, let's say you get through sober January, it's not so much that it's a pent-up demand, it's now you've said, look, I'm not out of control. I can control my drinking, or I can control my, mm -hmm. my cannabis. It's not an issue for me. And, and indeed, even people with the genetic environmental influences that cause addiction, even when they have the, and they can identify it as, I'm, you know, I got some momentum with alcohol, I can see I have this thing, those people don't have to stop. They have to not lose control. It's, it's really sort of a threshold issue. Once you cross that threshold with addiction, then you can no longer control it, and then you need me. Dr. Drew, let's shift to another topic that you have spoken out about now for years, and I know you've gotten, especially in the early days, quite a lot of grief for it. COVID-19, the emergency surrounding COVID-19. We saw the Biden administration announcing yesterday late yesterday, that the official federal emergency declaration will finally end on May 11th. So all of February, all of March, all of April, and then well into May, that's the drop-dead date they're saying. May 11th, the emergency will end on that day. And some of the reporting that's emerged in the last 24 hours or so is they wanted to wait longer before they made this announcement but there were political considerations, political pressures coming in. Democrats were getting worried that Republicans were going to use this issue. I think many Americans very much feel like the full-blown emergency and all the authorities and all that money should have been over a while ago. Just from a medical standpoint, it just seems strange to me that you would say pinpoint – I mean, everything – you have to do something at some point. But to pinpoint a date three and a half months into the future, May 11th, is when the emergency is over, and not a day sooner, not a day later, but we wanted to announce it later, but because of politics, we're announcing it sooner. It doesn't feel really like science to me. I wonder what you think of it. Well, so little of this pandemic was scientifically based. Uh, we've learned, if nothing else, we've learned how difficult it is for bureaucracies to change direction, right? And the other thing, I do a streaming show on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 3 o'clock. And uh, today I'm going to speak to Del Bigtree. Tomorrow I'm talk speaking to Dr. Ryan, who's a pathologist, very famous for uh, sort of compiling data on uh, vaccine injuries. I have talked to a lot of people who were silenced during the pandemic and learned something significant from each one of them. But one of the most startling things I learned, and, and I really, they had to convince me of this. I had to hear it from multiple sources, was how arbitrary so much of this pandemic response was pulled out of blue sky six feet do you know where that came from six feet distancing i know not the science i know even walensky was privately saying three feet is fine but then it became Com six, completely so. out of the blue they were trying to decide between three feet and 60 feet there was no evidence for anything the term social distancing didn't really exist they just said, well, we'll get them to comply with six feet. Let's do that. With no evidence, complete. I, I've talked to doctors now who were in the room when the decision-making was underway, and they were like, what, what, are you do, what, what are we doing here? And almost everything, 
all the excesses, all the overreaches had that same quality. And now we know where did lockdowns come from? That's a notion that has never existed in the history of medicine, save one lockdown in the 12th century, which resulted in untoward death. Where did it come from? We now have the email chain that shows us that a team went to China. They were duped and hoodwinked by a bunch of Chinese scientists who told them this is the greatest way to to, uh, combat this thing. And that became our policy, Italian policy, and then world policy. And there was all the way zero evidence that this would be useful, that there were tons of evidence through history that there are much better ways to conduct ourselves. We, And, well, you know, i got to tell you, guys, in this whole thing, this reminded me so much of the opioid epidemic. I mean, I lived through that. I fought it. I was, I was a crusader against it. And it was line and verse, the exact same thing. And in terms of how they took over the regulators and how they silenced people like me who stood up, how they took professional societies and VA and state medical societies and had them do their dirty work by sanctioning people who dared not to treat pain as the fifth vital sign. In that, what I discovered during that pandemic is there were evangelists. There were doctors back at the beginning who started with good intent but became evangelical. And evangelical scientists and doctors are anathema. You should run away if your doctor is an evangelist for any particular anything. It's, scientists should be non-hubristic, humble, careful, changing all the time. But there are evangelists. There were evangelists. I've discovered this now by talking to people who, again, were in the rooms with the CDC and the NIH. Evangelists took off and went on their own and began talking to governors and evangelizing to save the world from this horrible virus without any consensus, backing, or evidence that what they were doing is right. You end up with the opioid pandemic. And, of course, the drug companies don't do this. Doctors do it. But the drug companies breathe wind into the sails of what the physicians create. And we are finding the evangelists that really cause the excesses of this pandemic. Yeah, and a lot of the harm that was done, especially to kids. I saw there was a study the New York Times reported that on average students lost one-third of a school year because of this. And, and all of the ramifications echoing through years on that front. Brand new U.K. study finding that during the Omicron surge, 76% of the deaths of young people, so infants to age 19, 76%, two or three quarters of them, were incidental, caused not by COVID, but people dying with COVID, a distinction that for a long time we weren't even allowed to talk about, calling into question some of these huge death totals. Not to say the pandemic wasn't serious, but trying to quantify it and deal with it properly, like a lot of that was verboten in a lot of places for the reason that you were just describing. Dr. Drew, our guest, he's a doctor, he's an addiction specialist. Check him out at drdrew.com or drdrewtv, where he's got a streaming show that he just mentioned, all the podcasts as well. Always appreciate it, sir. I look forward to next time. Yeah, great to talk to you. Dr. Drew on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Guy Benson with you on The Guy Benson Show. Quick factor follow-up on a story we've been all over here for weeks. One of the multiple scandals in Northern Virginia schools that the Yunkin administration has been looking into. They blew the cover off of a sex assault cover-up and a bunch of lies resulting in firings and indictments in Loudoun County. In Fairfax County and a few others now, you've got 
well over a dozen high schools that apparently withheld information from students and families about these national honors, the national merit scholarship honors that certain students were able to achieve at high levels. It didn't align with the equity goal of the district. And so someone decided, someone has decided multiple times over at multiple schools to delay informing students that they had earned this prestigious accolade. Because it was just unfair to the other students who hadn't. Feelings, equity, all this stuff. Outrageous. Affecting, actually, admissions decisions. Early decision, early action, that kind of thing. The excuse when this finally got revealed was it was resulting from a, quote, one-time human error in the fall of 2022. But ABC7 in D.C., Nick Minock, who's the only reporter locally really covering this, he's uncovered some evidence that this could have happened at least once before in previous years as well. And the one-time human error never made sense even in the context of this academic year because it happened 17 places at least. That's not a one-time error, and it may have gone back further than just this past year. So Jason Miares, the AG in Virginia who we had on this show, he's got more information to look into on this. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Still to come, Howie Kurtz, Chris Christie on the show today. Let's get you a Fox News alert to begin with, though. The Dow up today, erasing the losses from yesterday and then some in the green by 369 points today, closing out just north of 34,000. 34,000. And 86. Well, this is sort of an interesting story to me. I'm about to share it with you. This is from NBC News. Backdrop is as follows The Republican National Convention in 2024, which will be the nominating convention for the presidential ticket, it's going to take place in mid July in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So the dates and the location have been set. So whoever will be up there at the podium accepting the party's nomination remains to be seen. Maybe we'll get into some of that with Governor Christie later on, but we know where and when that will take place. Mid-July, Milwaukee. The Democrats have not finalized a spot yet. They had four finalist cities, New York City, Chicago, Atlanta, and Houston, Texas. And then I guess they had just announced that Houston was out of the running. So it was down to and is down to New York, Chicago, and Atlanta. NBC News reporting, quote, Southern Democrats are banding together to urge President Joe Biden to select Atlanta for the 2024 Democratic National Convention. Now, there would probably be a lot of economic benefit to Atlanta if that were to happen. Having been down to our affiliate multiple times at 106.3 Extra in Atlanta. I don't even want to think about the traffic and the congestion down there if it were to happen. But you've got this group of Southern Democrats, dozens of them, signing a letter urging Biden and the Democrats to pick Atlanta over New York City or Chicago, and they have all of their reasons why. 
Now, on some level, it makes sense, right? This is a major city that has hosted many major events from sporting events, Olympics, you know, college football championships, all of that over the course of many years. It's also a very important state in our current political environment and landscape. The Republicans are going to Wisconsin for a reason. The Democrats have New York. The Democrats have Chicago. Georgia has been a toss-up. Trump lost it in 2020. The last three Senate elections all went to runoffs and all went to the Democrats, barely. Republican Governor Brian Kemp won by eight points. The Republicans have all the other statewide offices, and they have a pretty significant stranglehold on the state legislature as well. It is a purple state that has been purple-blue at the federal level, purple-red at the state level. And as long as a state like Georgia, and I would add Arizona, continue to go blue, the concept of a Republican winning the Oval Office, winning a presidential race, is basically impossible. Right? It's, it becomes a nearly completely infeasible map if Georgia and Arizona are going in the Democratic column. And so, obviously, the Democrats want to keep that momentum up. So Atlanta would make sense, sort of planting their flag in that city, in that state, ahead of the next general election. So I get it, right? Strategically, it makes some sense to me. On the other hand, it is time for one of these. It's a Guy Benson Show, Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update. Apparently, Georgia is no longer racist enough to dissuade Democrats from pushing hard to have Atlanta host their national convention. Right? It already made the final three. Right? The main city in the Jim Crow state that suppresses the vote of black people. That's what they've told us now for the last year or two. Lying through their teeth in the most deliberately divisive racial terms possible. This is what they have said. They have been fully invested as a party at the state level and at the national level in this bogus insidious narrative it didn't matter to them that they were factually wrong it hasn't mattered to them that the actual facts have borne out just how thoroughly their lie has been destroyed all-time record turnout in a midterm election in early voting after the new reforms were implemented the terrible jim crow reforms president biden making References to segregation, to the Confederacy, just like really shameful stuff from President Biden right on down. The elected Democratic Party, their activist base, their activist offshoots, including the mainstream media, they were all in on this. And then you get, in a midterm season, record early turnout, record voter participation in the general as well, and record participation for a midterm in the runoff for that Senate seat. We told you about the polling that just came out from the University of Georgia, where 99% of Georgians said that they had a positive experience voting, and 0% of black voters said they had a poor experience. 
no racial gap at all. Vast majorities of blacks and whites saying that they had an easy time, an excellent experience. There was no voter suppression. It was a lie. It's a lie that they have stuck to. Even after he won in his victory speech, Senator Warnock was complaining about this, like, oh, we won despite this. It's the unfalsifiable canard. They make a racially divisive claim that's a lie. And whether they win or lose, they claim it's still true, even though literally all of the evidence proves that it's not true. And these people not only perpetrated the lie, They did so so loudly with such hysteria that they bullied a bunch of entities and corporations and companies into carrying their water on the lie for them. From Delta Airlines to Coca-Cola, of course, Major League Baseball being the worst. They just amplified the lie and like affirmed that there was something true about it when in fact there was nothing. And now, this is sort of the final, they'll never really admit this, but this is the final concession that they were lying all along. Because if this was a Jim Crow segregation, Biden called it worse than segregation, worse than segregation. That was Biden, the president of the United States, Mr. Healing Unity Guy. That's what he said. If this were anything close to reality, and all the boycotts were worth it, they would be very much expanding their boycott to make sure that their national party didn't gather in Atlanta. It, would know where, it wouldn't be anywhere near the final three. It wouldn't have been on the initial list at all. You can't go to Georgia. That's where Jim Crow is back. That's where racial you know, voter suppression is happening. We can't go there. I saw Jim Garrity at National Review writing about this, and he asked, how is it that Georgia was too racist and problematic for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, but it's okay for the Democratic National Convention when no facts have changed whatsoever? And the answer is because these people didn't believe their lies in the first place. They wanted other people to lie it, uh, to believe it, rather. They wanted to keep their voters and their base angry and afraid to motivate them to turn out. They say that's what the Republicans do. They're fear merchants. They did that cynically. They don't even believe it. And now they might be heading to Atlanta to prove it. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this break. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So I saw this tweet yesterday from President Biden from the official presidential handle, at POTUS. And it's a photo of a big, grinning Joe Biden with a COVID mask, looks like, down by his chin. And he is seated in the driver's seat of a gigantic, hulking vehicle of some sort. It's a white SUV, it looks like. And the tweet reads, On my watch, the great American road trip is going to be fully electrified. And now, through a tax credit, you can get up to $7,500 on a new electric vehicle. So this is a football spike celebration of Biden policy from the big guy himself. It seems like he's saying, you too can get an electric vehicle. Look at what we're doing for you. This big tax credit isn't this wonderful. Look how happy I am. Look at this car. 
Now, if you dig just beneath the surface and the bumper stickers here, there's a few problems. You might call this photo op something of a self-inflicted wound, self-defeating, if you will. Number one, I understand that they want to wean us off of gas-fueled vehicles and move to an electric-fueled fleet nationally for the environment, they say. Now, electricity isn't free. It doesn't grow on trees. It's not mystical magic or anything like that. It costs money, and sometimes we've seen problems with our electrical grids in various parts of the country for various reasons. So that's just one complication to keep in mind. Another factor here is President Biden is touting this $7,500 max, like up to $7,500 in assistance with this tax credit to buy one of these allegedly environmentally friendly cars. The car that he's showcasing in the tweet is the new Hummer electric vehicle. And the main addition of this Hummer EV costs more than $110,000. There's a cheaper version of it clocking in at about eighty grand. So let me just ask, if you're an average family sitting at home, trying to make ends meet, dealing with still the ongoing inflation, concerns about where the economy might be headed, how many American families are in the market for a car that costs six figures? Even after the tax credit, let's say you get every single cent of that tax credit, $7,500, the price tag of that main version of this car is still six figures and north of $70,000 for the less expensive model. There is a very small percentage, I would say, of American families who have the kind of money lying around to go for something like that, even with this Ballyhooed tax credit that he's trying to tout and brag about in this tweet. This is a tax credit for that car that would benefit rich people. And how is it paid for? How are the tax credits, which is part of this Green New Deal agenda, that was jammed into a bill that they called the Inflation Reduction Act? But as Bernie Sanders said, it's really a climate bill. They just slapped the label on it because people were worried about inflation. This was a climate spending bill. How did they finance some of these giveaways and these tax credits? Well, by doubling the size of the IRS, of course, including the hiring of 87,000 new employees and agents to come after what they say are billionaire tax cheats. But in reality, they're going to be combing through the finances and the documentation of Many Americans disproportionately working class and less wealthy Americans because that's what the IRS does. That's what the data shows. We've talked about that. When the Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act completely on their own, zero Republican votes, they said, no, no, this this is not going to be used. The new doubled IRS will not be weaponized to come after middle class people or working class people. And Republicans said, we don't believe you, but let's add an amendment to the law that explicitly makes that required. That there will be no commensurate increase in audits for people making less than $400,000 a year in order to keep 
Joe Biden's already broken multiple times tax pledge that you guys keep repeating like it's real. Let's just put it in the bill. If you want to pass it that way, you want to double the IRS, you promise it's not going to affect anyone who isn't rich or a corporation, let's just write that into the law and protect the lower-income Americans from any stepped-up or new capability, new capacity for audits, and every single Senate Democrat voted against that amendment and killed it. Because they knew where the money's at is rummaging around people's couch cushions and having a lot more IRS firepower to do it. So that was the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. That includes green elements like this $7,500 electric vehicle tax credit for what Biden is showcasing as a $110,000 Hummer, electric Hummer, which will go, that deal that he's talking about specifically would go to rich people, and it'll be paid for by the revenue brought in by a newly gigantic, muscular IRS, sucking up pennies from far less rich people across the country. Doesn't that feel like progress to all of you? Oh, and by the way, a number of people who know cars pointed out that this Hummer EV, this electric vehicle that he was sitting in, is a 4.5-ton vehicle. A guy named David Zipper tweeting about this, calling it a behemoth. He says the Hummer electric vehicle has been deemed, and he has, showing his work, a link to the source on this. It has been deemed so inefficient that it actually pollutes more per mile than a gas-powered sedan. So you, too, as a rich person, can get a $7,500 tax credit funded by poor people getting harassed by the IRS so you can buy a gigantic Hummer electric vehicle that pollutes more on a per-mile basis than just a sedan with a good old-fashioned gas tank. What an incredible job by President Biden and the White House highlighting what they obviously believe to be sound public policy and a sign of great progress. After all, on his watch, the Great American Road Trip is going to be fully electrified. Can you feel the progress, America? Aren't you grateful? By the way, that so-called Inflation Reduction Act was only made possible by the flip-flop from Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who then got rolled on other elements of the promise by his own party. And every single Senate Democrat voted for this thing, all of them, including the IRS doubling. And a number of them will be up for re-election in 2024. They'll have a chance to hear from voters. I think they should. And I hope Republicans make good decisions about who to put up against them because I think there could be a lot of accountability headed their way if their opposition is credible. Another thing to file into, like an input, into the old hopper on the 2024 election, which is going to be a big one in so many ways. The Guy Benson Show back after this. Howie Kurtz joins us when we return. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the show today, thanks for being here. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. 
podcast is free on the daily. Joining us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Also, he's got his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, at foxnewspodcast.com. I follow him on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's always good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be along. I want to start with the breaking news today from CBS News, just another little shoot-a-drop, a a drip, 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 as I've been calling it in this Biden document scandal, where the timeline is once again getting altered, where we are discovering, courtesy of CBS, that there was an FBI search of the Biden Center at Penn in Washington, D.C., in mid-November. So this was after the initial discovery based on what they're telling us happened, which Again, I view very skeptically here because it keeps changing and the story keeps evolving. But they say that they found the initial documents, including top secret materials before the election. They sat on that for weeks, really months, until the public was told. And at least according to the story that they had been sharing with us until today, the next real development was they found, surprise, surprise, a few more documents here and there and now everywhere at the house up in Wilmington, but they just omitted from this story arc the FBI search in mid-November. And I'm just not sure if it substantively changes this story, but it certainly seems like yet another significant detail that has been concealed until now from public view, which I think should rankle journalists who have been told over and over again that the White House has been fully transparent and fully cooperative. Obviously, that's not the case, at least on the transparency part. And for American voters, the American public, who might be you know, tiring of the story, here is another element of it that was kept from them. And therefore, I think it's at least on some level significant. I would use a stronger word than rankle. And by the way, the public was told about this because of scoops by CBS and NBC, not because the Biden White House suddenly decided to come clean. You know what's right. infuriating and exasperating about this? Is that this is a bit of information that actually could have helped the White House narrative, because there's been weeks of talk about, well, how come the FBI conducted a search of Mar-a-Lago, with a court order, I would add, you know, in the whole Donald Trump saga, which was treated as a DEFCON 1 controversy until we found out about Mike Pence and, of course, President Biden. But now that we know that the FBI did at, you know, at the invitation of the Biden lawyers, uh, conduct a search. It sort of takes that argument off the table, but they're too dumb politically to figure that out. And also, just like, why hold all this stuff back? The classic example, just briefly, is when uh, the first batch of documents discovered, that was the Biden Penn Center, in fact, and the White House confirmed the scoop by one of the networks and knew at the time there was a second batch at the Wilmington House, but right. didn't say anything. Right. Yep. No, I think that they've bungled this very badly on a number of different fronts. It's still a little bit unclear to me exactly how the FBI got involved. I know that they're saying in the CBS News story that there wasn't a search warrant because this was mutually agreed to. Maybe this is in some ways an exculpatory detail or at least could be spun that way by the White House. And yet the White House and Biden's lawyers decided to keep it secret completely, which is why at least I don't think it's unfair for me to speculate or at least wonder if there isn't a little bit more to this than meets the eye, because it wouldn't make sense for them to hide it this way, Howie, unless they had some sort of incentive to do so. 
I want to know what that incentive is, and I've just sort of given up a while ago just taking their word for it that all the details and the whole you know TikTok and sequence is being shared with us in a completely fair-minded and accurate manner because now time and time again we're learning that has not been the case. This has not been done in a transparent and timely way. They have withheld, first of all, the existence of the story and then details of the story on multiple occasions for whatever reason, and that seems suspicious to me. Well, who knows? I mean, it's been a Keystone Cops routine from the very beginning. Even things that, as you say, could be construed or spun as favorable are, are getting held back till somebody else reports it. And by the way, uh, it seems to me that after the discovery that Mike Pence you know, had some documents at his Indiana home, the whole media tone, which had been like Donald Trump was terrible, Joe Biden was sloppy and dumb, but it's not really a thing here, is now like, well, they all do it, and, you know, it's not that big a deal, and nobody's going to be charged. Um, kind of trying to sweep it under the rug, I think, but I don't think that's going to happen. Well, especially because they keep delivering new pieces of information that they have been obviously withholding deliberately for some reason while pretending publicly to the faces of journalists in the briefing room, etc., that, like, look, this has all been dealt with, it's over, we've addressed this, even though they really haven't addressed it in a significant way. They punt all the questions This is just, you know, more grist for the mill and another black eye in this whole thing. And we'll see where it leads. Howie Kurtz, I want to get your reaction to the media coverage of another big story. The horrible incident down in Memphis, Tennessee, the ramifications of it, some of the fallout from it, uh, the the police officers who have been fired and there will be, I think, prosecutions as well. What do you make of the media coverage of this latest police-involved incident, and really the racial component of it as well, because the victim, the deceased, is black. So were the five cops who killed him. As you watch the news media cover this one, what are some of your takeaways? Well, it's really gotten to me, because Tyree Nichols was a 29-year-old father who worked two shifts at his job to try to make ends meet, no criminal record whatsoever, and he winds up dead after a routine traffic stop. Now, I think the, the, if there is, can be a silver lining here, it is that the press generally praise the handling by the Memphis Police Department, which has a black police chief as well, of very quickly moving to fire these officers, to charge them with second-degree murder, to put that video out in other cities and other instances. This has taken years. But, of course, the thing that's so hard to understand at the heart of it is this isn't the usual white cops beating up a black kid. And I've listened carefully, Guy, to African-American commentators, including Gianna Colwell, who was on Media Buzz, talk about how for black police officers, they are viewed suspiciously by the community uh, because they are seen by many as upholding a white power structure, so they don't get the respect there. They may have their own prejudices uh, against black potential suspects because they know the community well. Um, And I do think this shows you that the thing that I could not get about this 
is that after George Floyd and after Eric Garner, Garner on Staten Island and all these other cases where suspects wound up dead in police custody, they all, every, almost every department has body cams. And all of these five officers, and they're kicking him in the head, and they're beating him, uh, you know, uh, and they're just completely, they know the footage is going to come out. And so why did they do it? And what Gianno Caldwell said to me was they thought they could get away with it. And I think 20 years ago, they might have gotten away with it. I think 10 years ago, probably not, because everybody's got cell phone cameras now. And now this shows you the great advance of, the, of police having to wear body cameras, but it's still kind of blows my mind that these officers would blow up their careers uh, in order to beat up on somebody who, as far as we can tell, didn't do anything wrong. Howie, on the subject of footage and accountability, we finally saw the body cam footage from the Paul Pelosi attack, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi at their home in San Francisco. Uh, It was eerie. I think it really made clear what the dynamic was and put to bed, at least in my mind, some of the rumors or questions that were out there, some of which I think were created by ambiguity and a lack of information. So I kind of understand some of it. Of course, it's spun into crazy conspiracies in certain quarters, especially on the right. You had people on the left using the opportunity to try to bludgeon the right, saying this guy was a right winger, even though he had a lot of leftist ideology in his background as well. So partisans did their, unfortunately, their normal thing on this. Then... Many weeks later, we got this body footage, and I think a lot of people looked at it and said, oh, okay, now we see, now we kind of understand what happened. I wonder why. Maybe there's a legal reason why, but I, at least from a, a PR standpoint, a transparency standpoint, a getting-to-the-truth standpoint, I think we would have benefited from seeing this body cam footage much earlier than we did, and I wonder if you agree with that. There's no legal reason. It was just stupidity, and it did create some space for these absolutely wild conspiracy theories, including the report that was later retracted by NBC that, look, let's let's call this what it is. Some of these conspiracy theories, uh, Elon Musk linked to one. He apologized yesterday. Uh, there was a suggestion that the Paul Pelosi and his crazy attacker, David DePap, who called into a TV station the other day and has no remorse whatsoever. Sorry he didn't right. get more Democratic targets. Um, that um, that they somehow knew each other, that maybe they had a relationship, that why didn't Pelosi try to flee? I mean, in fact, an 82-year-old man handled as best he could. He called the cops and sort of spoke in code. The police were there. I don't understand why they couldn't have gotten to him before uh, DePap took the hammer to his head, which unfortunately we see. It's very hard to watch. Uh, but I do think that it's cleared up any crazy, nutty, far-fetched theory now that we see the actual footage. Yeah, I wish they could have just put it out quickly, and I think that would have really put to rest a lot of that stuff before it got going, and now we've finally gotten it. And yeah, you've said there have been these other news hooks of this guy somehow calling into a local news station and expressing zero remorse whatsoever. And then Nancy Pelosi reportedly bringing an exorcist in to the House to try to purge maybe some of the energy that was in there. Uh, Just a a very weird story from start to finish. And now it does really seem to be finished pending, you know, the legal side of it and the prosecution. But I think that that was, you're right, a bad move on the authorities. And I think that the media should have been given license to share this with the public much sooner. And we could have avoided uh, some of the nonsense Lastly, Howie, I want to ask you, I know that there was some ooing and eyeing in a bad way about CNN's ratings last week. I think it was like their worst ratings in years. 
across the board, really bad in prime time, really bad on the day side. There was an announcement that they're going to be incorporating part of Bill Maher's HBO show once a week into their lineup. That was going to a previous rumor that you and I had talked about where they might be trying to compete with some of the, you know, comedy stuff, some of the laughs, whether it's Gutfeld or what have you. That's going to be the Bill Maher component, not new content, but repurposed content, it seems like. Their new chief over at CNN, Chris Lick, seems to be giving interviews to everyone. He's all over the place getting profile pieces and magazine articles and all this sort of thing. And number one, I just wonder what you make of this project, because so far, whatever the reimagining of CNN that's been undertaken, whatever they're doing hasn't been working yet. And then more broadly speaking, it's just kind of, at least to me, it seems like the growing pains of a network that was the first in the space, had a pretty clear identity for a long time, then changed that identity in the Trump era, which worked okay for them for a while and then came crashing down. Now they're trying to rebuild yet a new identity, and at least so far it hasn't been going terribly smoothly. Just your thoughts on what we're seeing over there. Well, Chris Licht is paying the price for the previous management having turned uh, CNN into MSNBC light or not so light, but, you know, by being completely and totally anti-Trump until he leaves office and the ratings collapse. I, I, I kind of agree with what he's trying to do, which is to say that uh, let's be the down-the-middle network, let's emphasize reporting and all of that. I think it's very tough to do. For example, I mean, this is the guy who helped launch Morning Joe, and so he knows about morning shows. He puts together this morning show, brings Don Lemon over from his very opinionated primetime show. The show is doing terribly in the ratings. They just got rid of the uh, executive producer bringing somebody else in because it doesn't know what it wants to be. Does it want to be uh, a light, chatty uh, morning show? Does it want to have a lot of news, more news than anyone else? Um, does it want to be some sort of hybrid? Uh, it just uh, It's trying to be too many things at once. And I think the problem for CNN, and this is true years ago, even before Trump, is that um, people tend to turn to it when there's an earthquake, a tsunami, a war, and the rest of the time, it's kind of dull and he hasn't quite figured out maybe doesn't have the personnel to do it how to make it less boring more compelling uh without going uh the partisan route yeah and is there generally in your experience like a grace period where someone taking over a faltering enterprise is given x amount of time to turn things around and then if it doesn't happen then you start to see the knives come out, or if there is sign of you know progress here or there, then they kind of have a longer leash. What does that look like in terms of what kind of space, breathing room he's got? Well, I think the media generally would give him at least six months before they start beating up on him. But basically, the pro he's got a bigger problem than that, which is a lot of people who work there are both scared and angry about a bunch of layoffs. Because inevitably, when the corporate merger came about uh, that led to the hiring of Chris Licht, um, people were let go. And Chris Licht had said, well, that's it for the layoffs. Now there are more layoffs. And there may be still more layoffs. Remember, they got rid of CNN Plus and, and all of that. So it's hard to have a good morale when everybody's looking over over their shoulder wondering if they're going to be next. Howie Kurtz is host of Media Buzz, Fox News Channel, every Sunday morning. Howie, we always appreciate your insights. Look forward to being back on the TV side and having you back here on radio soon. Okay, thanks, Guy. Let's step aside. Let's take a break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come, including just a wonderful soundbite from our vice president where she's just so eloquent, isn't she? Her latest addition to the catalog right after this. 
The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, as promised before the break, we're going to hear from our vice president, who is just filled with sage advice, witty bon mots, wisdom, experience, deep understanding of many matters, and she's just able to communicate them in such an inimitable way. It's one of her calling cards, really, if you think about it. So she was in North Carolina for a panel discussion about small businesses, and she started talking about family businesses, and, well, she said this in Cut 22. When we talk about our small businesses, it not only is it intergenerational, but also we've got entrepreneurs in their teens and 20s to families who have been doing this for generations and, in, you know, our seniors. And so it's really, that's also what's also exciting about our small businesses and who they are because it spans the generations in addition to being intergenerational. It spans the generations in addition to being intergenerational. See, I was under the impression that those were basically synonymous, spanning generations being, by definition, intergenerational, but she's on a different plane of understanding. So I'm not going to question her. Aside from just saying that, as is so often the case, she sounds like the kid in the back of the room who gets called on having not done any of the reading. And thinks that he or she is smooth enough to just sort of BS it and come up with something that is reasonably intelligent sounding, that can fool everyone except not a single person, especially the professor in that room is fooled at all. That's what that sounded like to me. And I think it probably did to you. Very exciting. Small businesses, the generations, the teens, senior citizens, exciting generations, small businesses. It spans the generations, really, if you think about it, in addition to being intergenerational. Thank you, Madam Vice President. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, up next. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. hour on the Guy Benson Show. It has arrived. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us, social media, Twitter, and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. As always, just fantastic. I invite you to try it if you're 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they've expanded, where they are sold near you. You can also order online. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now is Chris Christie, who is the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey, my home state, a Republican, author of the book Republican Rescue. You can follow him on Twitter at GovChristie. And, Governor, it's always good to have you here. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Guy. 
So I wanted to get your reaction first on the new wrinkle in the classified document scandal involving President Biden and, of course, several others as well. This being reported just earlier this afternoon, the FBI, as it turns out, searched that office at the Penn Biden Center in mid-November after, I believe, if the timeline is correct, the president's lawyers were said to have found the initial trove of classified materials, including top secret materials, labeled and marked as such at the time. And so if you just take a step back, Governor, you've got, again, if they are now giving us a more complete picture because it has been murky and I've been qualifying my timeline because a lot of this is based on what they have been telling us, they being the White House, Biden's lawyers. But the initial story was they stumbled upon some classified stuff while they were packing up the office in D.C. before the election. Well, no one publicly. They held on to it. They sat on that for months. And then they started searching and finding more documents at the president's house in Wilmington three or four different times. And the DOJ got involved, and they were part of a search in Wilmington at the latter tail end of this whole thing. Now we find out, reportedly, that the FBI actually was involved in a search at this Washington office back in November. They never bothered to tell us this until now. It got reported out in the media. And this might not be an earth-shattering shift in terms of the narrative or the timeline, but it seems like a pretty glaring omission, and it leads me to wonder what else haven't they been telling us about, and why should we be trusting their ever-shifting official account of this? Well, Guy, I said this, I think now three weeks ago on ABC, that the most intriguing part of the special counsel's investigation of Joe Biden to me is <clears throat> who instructed uh, him and, and who, who was it gave the instructions, whether it's the president or was it Ron Klain, to not release to the public the fact that they found these documents prior to the election. And I, and I think now when, when you find out that the FBI then did what they were supposed to do in performing a search of the Penn Biden Center, and the FBI, I assume that's subject to a, a search warrant, um, which they're not allowed to uh, discuss publicly. But well, the just White so you House know, case, this was just to jump in, Governor. It's a CBS News report that revealed this new detail. According to the report, the sources that they're quoting say that there was not a search warrant sought because I guess the FBI came to Biden's representatives who then agreed to do it. So there was a mutual agreement here. But again, Governor, they keep patting themselves on the back and trying to be very self-congratulatory about how transparent, how cooperative they've been. And yet they held the very existence of this problem out of the public eye until well after an election. And then even when they started to finally cop to the truth, or at least the partial truth, which kept getting uglier and uglier as more documents were found, they just uh, strangely omitted a significant detail a significant element of the timeline which was an fbi search we're finding out about it now courtesy of cbs news months later well there's nothing transparent about what they've done guy as soon as you start off by having first discovered these prior to the election and made an affirmative decision to conceal that from the american people i want to know who made that decision was it president biden was it dr jill biden was it uh was it ron Klain? 
who made the decision to conceal it from the American public. And I think if they want to try to start to begin to be transparent, they should tell us right now who made that decision and not wait for that to be uncovered through the work of the special counsel. And so to me, for them claiming they're transparent is complete baloney. And the only thing transparent about it is how transparent that they weren't transparent. It yep. is. And how transparently political all of this has been. And they have revealed what they've wanted to reveal on their own timetable, except when they then embarrass themselves. They've just made a huge mess of the whole thing. And this is just another component of why I think a lot of people don't really trust the official narrative that I've been skeptical of since day one. Because, again, when you're relying on this weird hash of some official statements and then the president's lawyers who are paid to represent and protect his interests, not necessarily the truth of the national interest, uh, that is not the right way to go about it. And yet they are insisting that they be congratulated and celebrated for their transparency. Uh, And I think this is another blow to all of that on this front. Meanwhile, Governor Christie, you were just on national TV a couple days ago, and you made explicit what you've said a few different times, but sort of in no uncertain terms, you argued that Donald Trump cannot win a general election in 2024. If he becomes the nominee, you think he will lose. Just flesh that out for us. Why are you delivering that message that sort of frankly and candidly right now? Because everybody's whispering it, Guy. And someone needs to say it out loud. Someone needs to stop trying to thread this needle in the Republican Party where they're afraid of Donald Trump. I'm not afraid of Donald Trump, nor should anybody be afraid of Donald Trump after the performances that we've seen electorally by him since he was elected in 2016. He lost the House in 2018. He lost the White House in 2020. He lost the United States Senate in 2021. In 2022, We lost governorships because of candidates that he endorsed. We lost the United States Senate by an even greater number because of the candidates he endorsed. And we historically underperformed on historic norms in the House of Representatives. And so loser in 18, loser in 20, loser in 21, loser in 22. How much more evidence do we need? And by the way, that makes him responsible for everything that Joe Biden has done to this country for the last two years. Because that was an election that should have been won in 2020. It wasn't because of his conduct as a candidate. We lost to a guy who couldn't even leave his basement and campaign like a normal person. Someone who didn't have the energy, the stamina, or the ideas to do it. And now, excuse me, now we've got people saying he could possibly win. I, I don't see a scintilla of evidence that he could win, and anybody who's objective and unafraid should be saying it out loud. So a couple things to follow up on. Number one, there are a lot of people in our audience here on this show, at Fox Broadly, and just out in the country who love Trump. They voted for him twice. They thought he did a great job as president. They're eager to vote for him again. And they might sort of recoil at what you're saying. It's like, well, hang on. Didn't this guy lose to Trump? Back in 2016 in the primary, now he's calling Trump a loser. Why should we pay attention to what he's saying at all? I mean, what's your response if that's the pushback some people are going to have? It has nothing to do with me, Guy. It has to do with the evidence. The evidence is in 2018 he lost the House by monumental numbers. 
In 2020, he lost the White House by the same electoral vote that he won the White House by four years earlier. In 2021, he was instrumental in losing two Senate seats in Georgia that cost us a majority in the United States Senate. And in 2022, he, he endorsed people like Carrie Lake, like Mastriano in Pennsylvania, like Baldick in New Hampshire, like Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, like Tudor Jones in Michigan, like Herschel Walker in Georgia. All people, regardless of how you feel about them personally, lost. And I think our party needs to get back to winning again. This has nothing to do with me in 2016 because people will remember I endorsed Donald Trump in 2016. I chaired his transition. I played Hillary Clinton in debate prep in 2016. I chaired his opioid commission in 2018. And I played Joe Biden in debate prep in 2020. I voted for him in 2016, and I voted for him in 2020. But the evidence is clear, and I can't stand the idea of another four years of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House. And I don't think our country can deal with it, and we need yeah. to get back to winning. And I think on that front, you look at 2016 where he was able to thread the needle and beat Hillary, who, of course, is just awful as a candidate unto herself in her own right, but – Trump carried independence. He won independence in that election, and Republicans have struggled and or lost among independents at the federal level ever since. That has been, I think, the real turn that needs to be reversed for Republicans to win nationally. And what that will take, I think, is something that Republican voters need to really think hard about, even if they have personal loyalties sort of wrapped up in their mentality, their identity, the way that they view themselves as conservatives. You also have to respond to what the rest of the electorate is telling you over and over again in their voting patterns if you want to win. And you can't really achieve any of the goals that you want unless you win, right? That's, that's sort of job number one in politics. And on that score, Governor, I know there's, there's another line of thinking here that I'd love for you to respond to, which is we all lived through 2016, right? 2015, 2015. That whole primary process, and we're in the very early stages of the next presidential campaign. There's only one declared candidate on either side. It's Trump. But there's names being thrown out there all the time, including yours, about folks who might want to run. You lived through it personally last time, of course, running and then eventually dropping out after New Hampshire. But there are folks who agree with you wholeheartedly about your entire assessment that you just gave about Trump, his electability, etc., They say, however, we're seeing the party going down the exact same path with a huge field splintering the vote 20 different ways with a consolidated base for Donald Trump, which would be a huge advantage to him. Wouldn't it be, in your mind, a mistake to have another very crowded field knowing what happened last time and what those dynamics are likely to look like if the same pattern plays out? Well, the last part of your of your question is the most important one, if the same pattern plays out. That's a mistake people, in my opinion, guy, make in politics all the time. They, they run the next election through the prism of the last one. And I'm sorry, it just never works. It never happens. Um, I don't think they'll be anywhere near the number of candidates. Remember, there were 17 candidates in 2016. Um, there won't be anywhere near that number. You don't um, think so? Not even that many. No. And, and there's not even that many rumored. You couldn't give me 17 names right now of people who, you know, just sitting here and starting to name them, uh, you couldn't do it. Um, I think this is much more like a 2012 field where ultimately there'll be seven or eight people. 
And the other thing about this field is this is a pretty inexperienced electoral field of the people who are being rumored right now. And so if we were to consolidate, consolidate behind whom? whom? Who in that field has shown national electoral chops? Who has shown that we should have everybody else stand aside to get behind any one person? And, and I don't think anyone has shown that yet. And I think that's what campaigns are all about, is to see who can do that. And again, that's running a race in fear of Donald Trump. I'm sorry, we got to stop being afraid of Donald Trump. We have to evaluate him like any other candidate. And we have quite a track record to show us that despite the fact that I agree with many of the things that he tried to do and did in fact accomplish as president, he has made himself electorally toxic, especially among suburban women in this country, and we see this over and over again, are simply not going to vote for Donald Trump in majority numbers or even close to it. Um, if they get the opportunity again. All right, fair enough. That's obviously a big part of the case against nominating Trump again. But I do want to push back on something that you said. I'm going to do that right after this break. We've got to take it. We'll be back real quick. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Governor Chris Christie, our guest. And, Governor, you said in the last segment that you don't think there's anywhere close to 16 or 17 candidates running this time on the Republican side like there were back in 2016. During the break, I just brainstormed real quick, jotted some names down. Here's what I came up with. Trump, Asa Hutchinson, Christy Nome, Chris Sununu, Larry Hogan, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Tim Scott, Rick Scott, Joni Ernst, Glenn Youngkin, Rand Paul, Brian Kemp. That's 16 or 17 right there at least being rumored or discussing I'm not saying that you're wrong and ultimately every single one of these people will run, but it's an awful long list already. So just pushing back a little bit there, let's say it's not 17, but even a dozen, right? At what point do people need to internalize the other arguments that you're making and say, all right, we can't let last time become a repeat or a rerun. What could be done differently, even if there is a decent size field? a bunch of people getting in to make sure that there isn't this collective action problem again, what would that maybe look like, sort of peering down the road a little bit? Well, look, everyone always needs to be realistic about their own electoral chances. But in the end, that's what campaigns are for. And I just don't buy the idea that somehow, what should we do? All get in a room and, you know, what, draw straws, uh, check on, you know, arm wrestle, um, you know, uh, who who among that group is an obvious person to stay and who in that group is an obvious person to leave? Well, and so I don't I, I just don't know. This is not back to the days of the 1800s when people got in a smoke filled room and made a determination about who they considered to be viable and who they didn't. And so I, I just think that there's got to be a full discussion of these issues and a full discussion of the Biden record, and who's going to articulate the best vision for the future of the country. And, you know, we can't sit here and live in fear of Donald Trump. I just think it's the wrong way to approach it. Yeah, and it and might I, not be fear, right? They, there might be people running, running aggressively against him, but a lot of people doing that, and that redounds to his benefit, 
that strategically is something that needs to be thought about. Obviously, it's very early days here, many months to go through that and consider it. Very quickly, Governor, before you go, who you got in the Super Bowl? Look, as much as it pains me uh, as a Dallas Cowboys fan to say it, um, I think the Eagles look like the team who is the most prepared, the most talented um, in the Super Bowl. And so I think this is probably an Eagles win. Um, the Chiefs, obviously, Pat Mahomes is an outstanding quarterback, and they have some real talent on their side of the field as well. But how healthy will he be in two weeks against mm-hmm. what is the best pass rush in the NFL uh, and, and not the greatest offensive line on the Kansas City side? So, you know, if you're asking me right now, um, I'd, I'd be betting on the Eagles. I think the Eagles are probably the team that winds up winning the Super Bowl. Yeah, I'm a Giants fan. I hate that, but I would probably pick the Eagles and root for the Chiefs. That's my mentality heading into the big game. Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, our guest on the Guy Benson Show. Governor, always appreciate it. Guy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You bet. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back on the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today in our first hour on the Guy Benson Show, we welcome back to the program Dr. Drew Pinsky, a.k.a. Dr. Drew, board-certified internist, addiction medicine specialist, and, of course, a TV host and podcaster. Had a lot to talk about with Dr. Drew. Here's a bit of that conversation that we shared. So I saw this clip floating around a couple different times on a few different platforms, social media, in the last few days. And it was pretty striking to me. It was Gavin Newsom. Turns out he said this a couple of years ago in early 2020, but it is resurfacing and it's making the rounds and sort of reigniting a conversation about addiction. You're the perfect person to ask about this. And I guess we'll listen to this together in Cut 23, and the crux of my concern is finding the right balance from a public policy perspective between destigmatizing addiction in such a way as to help people get help versus destigmatizing it to the point of actually enabling it. Here's what Governor Newsom in California said. Again, early 2020, cut 23. Clean and sober is one of the biggest damn mistakes this country's ever made. I know it's a hold-your-hand idealistic point of view that somehow magically, I mean, God bless some of you. I, if you're like me, I've been known to have a glass of wine at night watching some of the nightly news. Uh, we all need to self-medicate periodically. We all need to self-medicate periodically. He's talking about, you know, a glass of wine here or there. Of course, that's a broader critique of, hey, people just need to be clean and sober And we've seen some of these very permissive sort of bleeding heart policies, especially in places like California, when it comes to addiction. When you think about these issues, having dealt with patients for many years, hundreds, if not thousands of them, what's the appropriate balancing act here? And what do you make of what we just heard there? Uh, This is nothing short of just, uh, you know, when I, when I think of those these positions that everyone has maintained here in California to sort of substantiate what they're doing with homeless, I become enraged because at its core, it denies the condition of addiction, which is an illness, and we can discuss what an illness is, but before somebody decides whether something is or is not an illness, you must be able to define 
all illnesses, so we know, in fact, what an illness is and see if addiction fits under that umbrella. And number two, um, it, in, in the definition of the disease of addiction is progression. That's part of the defining feature of addiction. So if you take somebody with bona fide addiction and you give them any substance that activates this reward system over time, they will progress, and when it comes to opiates or alcohol, they will die. So this is nothing less than, than manslaughter, in my opinion. I've said this for years. And at, here in California, we, well, in L.A. County alone, we have climbed since I last made my rounds talking about this from uh, five per day to six per day and now seven per day dying on the streets of L.A. County every day in the name of what? These are treatable conditions. Well, I, they I say treated, it's compassionate. I've treated right? literally thousands of people. This might pay, it's literally like I'm a surgeon walking down the street and I see the condition I can treat wherever I go, but I'm not allowed to go near the patients. And that's the condition. It's as though we have an outdoor, an outdoor asylum on our on our hands here, with no nurses and no doctors. It's uh, you can't imagine. Imagine. Let's just throw up some walls and say, okay, it's an indoor asylum now. People are dying at seven a day. You think that hospital would uh, not have a couple lawsuits on its hands? I think that's a fair point. What you would hear from Gavin Newsom and, and other people like that is they would say, well, look, this is a compassionate. Number one. And number two, it's unrealistic to say, look, these people are horribly addicted. They've got all these problems. We've got to make them clean and sober. That's not a a standard that is really attainable. So as a society, we should sort of let go of that as the goal. This may be why people get confused. People often, you know, when you're hearing information on the media, it's hard to hold multiple ideas in mind at the same time. But I'm going to ask you to do that. A- Returning people to a thriving life is very possible. 23 million people can tell you about it. Very possible. I ran a program for nearly 30 years. We did that all the time. And I I got into addiction medicine because I was interested taking people from dying, young people often, dying to better than they ever knew they could be. That's what I was interested in. That is not for everybody. There are people with multiple diagnoses, whether it's serious mental illness brain disorders, traumatic brain injury, schizophrenia, and addiction, for whom the idea and no resources and no motivation and no no people in their lives trying to trying to support them through this, it's unrealistic for that person to think about clean and sober. And there are great harm avoidance and medically assisted treatment strategies out there. Of course, we do that. We it's the right treatment for the right patient. But to dismiss a, a abstinence-based program uh, completely is it, well. That, now we're back to manslaughter. Now you're committing people to die. My full interview with Dr. Drew and all of today's show available online on our podcast, totally free of charge, on demand, start to finish, the whole thing after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. We all have our guilty pleasures, including when it comes to television consumption habits and entertainment consumption habits. Some trash TV talk when we return on The Guy Benson Show. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. 
the show's over, which is coming up in just a few minutes. So the background to this evening's topic occurred in my house last night. So I know, especially when I go away on various trips, Adam, my husband, likes to watch various shows that I would not watch at all if I were home. So he tries to sort of check those boxes, scratch those itches when I'm gone. And these programs, I mean, I'm going to mention a few of them. They include titles such as Dr. Pimple Popper. That's a thing. My Feet Are Killing Me, which I think is about just people in their awful feet and some doctor who tries to make the feet less awful. And then a show that came up last night called 1,000 Pound Sisters which I think is about two sisters who, when you add up their weights, it's uh, in the vicinity of 1,000 pounds, and it catalogs their various uh, travails and struggles. Now, it might sound very obvious that I would have no interest in any of these aforementioned shows, and I don't. And if he wants to watch them in his free time, those are his trashy TV tastes. That's his business. I will say I walked in last night. He hadn't quite finished one of the episodes, and he wanted to get it done, and I've been doing some work. I came downstairs, and I looked up, and 1,000 Pound Sisters was on, and I watched about two or three minutes of it, and for the life of me, I do not understand why this is a show, why people watch it, let alone the person that I'm married to. Surprise, surprise, Christine watches the show. Like, she immediately chimed in with the names of the people like she I guess is an avid viewer and knows all the drama involving the sisters and the people in their orbit or whatever Uh, Christine are you like a full-blown pen pal with any of these sisters yet are you on a first name basis with them because you seem to know a lot about this program Oh, well, we have to remember Tammy, one of the sisters, just got out of the hospital. She had a near-death experience, so we just keep her in your prayers. But I think you're missing the point of why people love this show. I don't really necessarily think it's about watching these morbidly obese people and, oh, my God, I can't believe that. I think it's it's the what is going on behind that weight. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you get like – Okay, you're supposed to be my therapist, so I feel like you should figure this out pretty quickly. Like, well, no, my, my, my theory is very different. My theory is that people watch this kind of thing to make themselves feel better about their situation, which I think is kind of twisted, actually. Yeah, I don't do that. I love— Sure you don't. I don't. I do watch Housewives for that reason because they are just hot, drunk messes. And I swear to God, every time I watch it, I'm like, yeah, no, my Saturday night wine is not as bad as this. So that does make me feel better. Do you watch this uh, Pimple Popper show? Oh, my God. I love Pimple Popper. Pimple Popper first started on YouTube. Ew. The doctor. Yes. Like you can, that is like a thing you can Google and like, no, you I watch. Will not. <gasps> the extractions. Oh, nope, can we stop. do this for the Benson retreat one night? Do you watch the extractions? You have to see no. what can come out of your no. skin. It's no, insane. I, oh, I love it. It's I just, love it, it. This is absolutely horrifying. And the thing is, I asked the team to sort of brainstorm what their brain candy 
sort of trashy TV guilty pleasures might be. And we know that Wyatt's our masterpiece theater and the Wall Street Journal report, right, when he's really feeling wild. He'll watch those. But my answer just, like, doesn't even come close to what you're talking about. Extractions of pimples and morbidly obese people and housewives throwing alcohol at each other. Like, I think there are different levels of trashiness. And, look, these shows exist for a reason. They have an audience. The housewives are very popular among especially women and gays. I can't get into the housewives either. I just feel like I have too many things happening in my life to be invested in the dysfunction of, like, cartoonish other people when it comes to the housewives, for example. And there's, like, whole armies of them in every city. So you're following all these dramas and feuds among people that have way too much time on their hands in Orange County and New York and Atlanta, and I think there's a bunch of other ones too. I, I'll i just say it's not for me. Dan, what is your trash TV show? Well, I don't really watch them just as a principle for myself. I can't stand it. It's very cringe for me, but my significant other does. First of all, she loves serial killer documentaries, so that scares the crap out of me, but that's a whole other story. Well, I'll watch that. I like true crime stuff. I will watch. And we can debate whether that falls into the same category. Mm -hmm. I would say true crime, serial killer, murder mystery stuff. That is at least a step up from housewives and pimple popping, in my opinion. But please, I've already thrown my husband under the bus. Please throw your girlfriend under the bus, too. Uh, Yeah, I just did. But she was watching the show one day. I came home. It was called The Circle. It's basically... Um, a bunch of people in a house that don't meet. They're all in their different apartments. but And some people can catfish. Some people are actually who they are. But they have this group chat. So they build alliances just in this group chat. Like it's an online thing only. You can share pictures. It's basically a metaphor for how we are now as a society. But like you just fall in love with the characters. And I hated the fact that I got into it. <laughs> she wrote me in so hard. And once you just watch it and watch all the characters and see how fun and like just goofy and it's just stupid fun thing to watch but i actually liked it a little bit huh okay and you said she was trying to pull you into the bachelor right yeah she started watching the new one she loves all that i just cannot do that that is where i absolutely draw the line i watched the first 15 minutes and i just can't do it it is so cringy and to put yourself through that situation like imagine going in there and being like a guy or a girl and being like i'm vying for this one person I, I just can't get behind it or, like, even pretend to watch it. It's just And, yet yeah, it's been going for what, like 20 27 years? seasons, this is. Yeah, it's just hugely popular. My answer to this is, I don't know if this even counts, but I love, and I've mentioned this before, Family Feud. Like, it is a very dumb game show filled with very dumb, often funny answers I like different hosts better than others. I like John O'Hurley. I actually really like Louis Anderson. I love Steve Harvey. Some of the other ones, like Al Borland from Home Improvement, just not really doing it for me. But the concept of Family Feud is funny. If I'm wanting to turn my brain off in a hotel and I'm just, like, vegging, putting the feud on, everything, just from the sound effects to the song to when they reveal answers that the contestants hadn't gotten yet and the whole audience shouts them in unison and then claps. 
I love all of it, and it is obviously not highbrow stuff, but I'm a fan. That's my answer. And by the way, I will put the family feud up against, like, on-camera pimple popping every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I Honestly, I do not understand. Do not understand. Christine, apparently you have something that you would like to share with the class about The Bachelor. I applied to be a contestant on The Bachelor when I was probably 22 or 23 years old. Uh, I did not get even a callback. Hmm. Um, I didn't even get to the video portion, so they didn't even get to see what Cookie looked like. I just did the online, you know, submission. But at the time, I also worked for the network, so that on the radio side, it could have probably been a problem. But um, well, we, we I, had a Fox colleague who was on The Bachelor as one of the female contestants a few seasons ago. She used to do a lot of booking at Fox. So, you mean I could still apply? I think that they're probably looking for a slightly younger crowd of ladies, <laughs> uh, unless they're sort of, I don't know, rebranding the show like like the Bachelor Wick season, right, where everyone's, <laughs> you know, you. of a certain age. Um, this is something I did not know. Cookie applied to be on The Bachelor. Imagine her audition video. Your, well, she said she didn't even get to the audition video no. stage yet. No, nobody was What was the goal there? Did you want to just, like, be involved in drama and reality TV, or were you the type of person who felt like you could truly find lifelong love in front of the oh. whole country oh, on I national was look- television? I was looking for love, guy. This is before Bobby. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, and I thought maybe yeah. The Bachelor would have been the right place. I can't even say no. that with uh, a straight face. Well, it's just it very much aligns with the uh, the overall theme of Cookie's judgment through the years, right? Not to put yourself out there for publicity, but because you felt like this would be yeah. Let's let's find a husband this way. It worked for some people. I also a boyfriend, an old boyfriend of mine and myself. We applied to be on the Amazing Race because we thought we would be a hoot. Uh, did not get. Um, no, didn't get anything back for that. Actually, almost everything. I applied once to be on The Real World. Nothing. The only thing wow. I ever got back was I wrote to Delilah. Uh, do you remember, you know Delilah the, on the radio? Delilah. Yes. Yes, and she did play my request. That was What song that was did fun. she play? I think I did. Uh, <laughs> I had... I had broken up with a boyfriend at the time, and then I wanted him back, and he was like, no, you're just going to break up with me again, so... I think I played, uh, oh, uh, I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. You know that one? I do. Did he hear this, or was this really just therapy for you? Well, I, I taped it. Duh. Remember back in the day, you had to tape it. Like a cassette tape? Mm-hmm. And then I mailed it to him. Wow, that is extremely creepy. And that's actually <laughs> how some of the aforementioned serial killer documentaries begin. And so it's just it's continuity here. We've come full circle. Wyatt is staying the hell out of this conversation, quite rightly, and also we're out of time. Back here tomorrow on the radio, same time, same place. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.
The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.